0: Welcome to season one, episode 26 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties. Today's episode is a very special one as we sit down with Josh Sawyer, design director of Obsidian Entertainment. Josh has been involved with designing some of our favorite role playing games in his 20 plus years in the industry, and he has many stories to share. Our conversation with Josh was absolutely a privilege as he provides insights into gaming, his own personal development, as well as answering some of your fan-submitted questions. We hope you enjoy.
1: Before we figure out how Josh allocated all the skill points and what perks he chose for Life's Character Build, we are Chelsea, Joe, and Mark. Three friends that got to interview one of gaming's best designers and absolutely enjoy the time we got to spend with him. If you got here by accident, however, you can find us by searching for Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast shows. We're on Facebook twitter instagram and also continue the conversation on our blog if you like reading that is we write stuff yeah uh pay us a visit and check out the extra content we share during the week
0: joe you know i remember my first interactions uh with josh sawyer it was actually seeing his name in the credits of some of the games that I had been playing because mm-hmm. I had always played RPGs uh, from an early age, or at least was watching someone play an RPG. Um, and I guess before we get into that too much, folks, you might notice that Chelsea's not on this this conversation. She actually had an emergency wedding that popped up.
1: Yep, uh, just a, just a you know eloping that happened, and she had to be there for it.
0: Yeah, she she's definitely there for her friends. So if you are a friend of Chelsea's and you need to get married in a hurry, she'll be there for you.
1: Yes, whether <laughs> it is in Wisconsin or in Vegas, she's going to make time for you.
0: <laughs> well, she was able to join us for this conversation, though. So, um, but it was uh, yeah. So Josh Sawyer is always a name that I kind of committed to memory because in the games that I had played, you know, we were in the military, we were moving around a lot, and honestly, I. I like remembered the names of the people that were making the games I was playing. I, I would look the the directors, the writers, the, the designers. Yeah. We uh, are, so, we are yeah.
1: vastly different people when it comes to that. I'll tell you <laughs> that like, I'm definitely <laughs> like, Oh, I've, uh, I've completed Pokemon. Uh, I've we've entered my Pokemon to the hall of fame. The credits are playing. I can't skip it. Or I miss it. My game boy down, walk away, make some food and I'll come back. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I generally miss a lot of the people who, um made games uh just because my attention spans out of a fly um <laughs> so but yeah i mean when it comes to this like ah, oh, this is just such a cool conversation josh is just you know one of the one of the, like like the more interesting people that you would meet in your life with his life experience and not only what he's done through like the gaming industry but like we get to talk about um his time he spent in the desert <laughs> which he used as inspiration for his video games, uh, and just his life in college, and yeah. how he it was a vastly different student than I was, but also a very similar student to many of my friends. Well, so they will probably relate to this, <laughs>
0: including myself, because, uh, as, as you'll find out here, uh, Josh's you know college years were obviously, you know, I still think were very well spent, but it was. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of uh, some things that I think a lot of people actually struggle with. So, um, you know, outside of uh, some of the interviews that that Josh has done here, he he's actually very very in tune with his fans and and the folks that like their the, the games that he's made, and he ultimately ends up answering so many questions along the way
2: mm-hmm. that
0: we thought it would be a very good use of our time, you know, on this show to to get into some of the areas that he maybe doesn't have asked very often or or maybe yeah because i mean i mean joe you you know just as well as i do we've been to comic cons and Mm -hmm. and all kinds of these fan meetups where you get so amped up to meet someone that has had an influence on you that you're asking them things that they they've probably gone through you know hundreds upon thousands of times um and especially when you have such a, a career as josh has had in the gaming industry um rather than ask him questions about things that you know may have involved uh it might be knowledge that he may not have as intimate of a a remembrance for anymore i mean there are some things that uh that involve like gaming lore and the details of making certain games like it's i'm I'm sure it becomes kind of i wouldn't say like uh forgettable but i would say over time you just kind of uh, delete files in your head and and make room for other things so (laughs) Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, but no, again, like I think, um, if you follow Josh, uh, tw- on Twitter or Tumblr or some of his other social media handles, um, he does a lot of answering over like, you know, why he made a choice of the particular game that he did, uh, or, um, what inspiration they had for that. And, you know, this, uh, this episode, we didn't spend a lot of time doing that. We spent a lot of time just really getting to know him and who he is as a person, So if you are really interested to know more about, like, Josh as a human being, uh, and not necessarily just, like, you know, why he did that, why he did what he did in Fallout, uh, yeah, this is going to be a great, great episode for you. Um, And again, like, just super cool, easy to talk to. And uh, I'm glad you brought up, like, you know, sometimes when you go to cons, uh, you get kind of caught up in in what's going on and you get you you, you don't ask what you actually want to ask and sometimes you almost physically bump into Erica Durance twice in a very short period of time and make yourself look incredibly <laughs> awkward. So we've made that not have to happen to you when you wanted to find out more about Josh today because he won't be there for you to accidentally almost run into twice.
0: yeah, I will say that this this was easily one of the most interesting one of the most enjoyable experiences that I've had with, you know, an artist and creator that I, I've, I'm very, you, you can tell I'm quite fond of Josh. He's, he's been a very big influence on the gaming that I've done throughout my life. And so um, this was a, a very, very fun time.
1: Yeah. So without further ado, Hey, let's just jump right into the interview.
0: Um, well, July has been a month that we've dedicated to the RPG so we've explored the rich history of the earliest known inspirations of RPGs and coming into you know, the modern age and the impact that, that RPGs has had on gaming, media, and, and literally shaping pop culture. So today we're joined by a very special guest who's been responsible for design and project direction for some of our favorite games. Uh, we'll mention a few of them here. Uh, Icewind Dale would be one, Fallout New Vegas, and Pillars of Eternity. Um, but he is known by many names. Orpheus, Rope Kid, Baby Goat, and The Great Balancer, which I've heard he wasn't quite familiar with at first. (laughs) But we do want to welcome
1: Josh Sawyer of Obsidian Entertainment. How are you doing tonight?
3: Doing very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we've rolled the nat 20 to get you here, to be completely honest. (laughs) 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 This is is pretty great.
4: I've been asked a lot of questions by friends of how we managed to do this. And to this day, I don't really know. (laughs)
3: can we reveal the secret the secret connection uh, <laughs> i'm totally fine absolutely, with absolutely yeah. yeah it's yeah. uh it's chris chris schmidt i believe is is friends with at least one of you and uh chris schmidt and i were we both went to lawrence university and uh we we're uh actually in the same fraternity we we're in uh the phi kappa Tau fraternity so that's that's the the great connection. So apparently, it hard, came up in man. conversation. He said, "Oh, I know this guy." So, yeah. <laughs> it's so, just that uh, easy.
2: Uh,
0: true story. Uh, when so, Chris, Chris and I know each other through Pokemon Go. Um, which, looking at my face, you can't tell that I actually get out and explore, right?
4: Catching <laughs> um, those ten k eggs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Chris and I were talking about. Uh, he he listens to the show. And he um, actually won one of our random Twitter contests, which was really weird because there's like 600 different people involved in this drawing. And somehow Chris Schmidt ends up at the top of it. And I go, nice. I didn't even know you were following us. <laughs> 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 so it was, it was just really funny. We get to talking. And as soon as he mentions um, that he went to college with you, I, I kind of stopped dead in my tracks and I went, that's a name I've had committed to memory for almost 20 years. I mean, I, I've, I grew up with, with his games and, and stuff he's worked on. So um, once again, we can't thank you enough for being here. It's, it's really, you know, an honor and a treat to, to get to talk with you about, you know, some of your career, but um, you know, similar to other discussions that we've gotten into, um, especially since there is that Wisconsin connection, right? Um, <laughs> Joe jo and I have uh, traversed Fort Atkinson quite a bit and, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, being hobbyists, well, Chelsea too. Um, we yeah. all like to collect stuff. We've been all over the place. So I guess when it comes to Ford Atkinson and and growing up in Wisconsin, um, I, I was just really curious how you got into playing RPGs and and just really the you know the the inception point for you there.
3: Yeah, it's uh so I think one of the things that's really challenging that might not be obvious as much anymore is that in the eighties, which is when I was growing up. Um, finding people who played D D in a small <laughs> town, a small Wisconsin town, uh, was kind of challenging. And I just happened to be friends with a guy named Ryan Niemeyer. I believe, I believe Ryan was the first guy to introduce me to a basic set, which is red book or red box dungeons and dragons. Mm-hmm. And we played that and then we played expert and that was really cool. Ryan also had a personal computer. Um, my family couldn't afford a personal computer at the time, but he had a, an IBM PC. It was EGA. So it was like four color. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he played wizardry, proving grounds of the mad overlord. And he played a couple of other things on it. And that was really cool. But I remember there was one day when I went to the Dwight Foster public library, which is the library in Fort Atkinson. Mm-hmm. and um, I saw an older kid on the Commodore 64, which I had not experienced at the time, Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was playing Bard's Tale One. Yes. And I lost it. Like I was, was, (laughs) like because it was it was full color. He let me like listen on the headphones, or yeah, because I think he had headphones. I listened to that, and it sounded like because the music on the Commodore was really like way better than any of the Apple stuff. Uh, or, Mm -hmm. or, or IBM PC stuff at that time. Um, and it had animate, like animated enemies. And I was just like, this is incredible. So I got really into it. And I was quite a bit younger than that guy, Tony Unati. And, uh, Tony introduced me to his friends. Uh, they were in middle school at the time. I was, wait, how old was I? I was? Yeah, I was still in grade school. They were in middle school. Um, but they were playing advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition, yeah. which I, I didn't, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I didn't even know there's this whole separate thing here with hardcovers. And uh, he got, he got me into playing. I started playing AD D with them. And I guess I was about like 11 or 12 or something like that. And then it just took off from there. And so I played a lot of tabletop, especially D D. But then later on in high school, I had some friends. Uh, my friend, Brian Calise, uh especially was really into Call Cthulhu and um, some other games. He was also like, I think he and I both started like trying to make our own systems. Um, by the way, now thanks to the magic of virtual tabletops, I still play <laughs> with, with Brian and most of my uh, high school group, like almost every week, which is really That's cool. That's awesome. That, wow. that is, that is um, amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really fun. Um, yeah because like I would say maybe 10 or 15 years ago it would be like if we were all in town on vacation like you know yeah. for Christmas we would do let's get together for one night and do a one shot uh but now that you know discord and and virtual tabletops are around we talk pretty regularly and play well now we've moved to doing one big session once a month <laughs> <laughs> because because the overhead the overhead of the little sessions mm-hmm. was kind of getting annoying like but anyway, we still play quite a lot um, and we've played, uh, I know they they've played even more than I have, um, but I've played in a fifth edition D&D game. And then we're running, uh, we're currently playing in a cyberpunk game using the Savage Ooh. World, uh, Savage World. What is it? It's Suede, Savage World Adventure Deluxe Edition. Um, yeah which is pretty cool. It's, it's a very swingy system, but, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the friends are what make it good. So it's been fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I got into it. And it kind of just took off.
0: And I definitely can appreciate the scarcity of trying to find folks to play the games with because, um, you know, I, I, my dad was in the military growing up. And so I would play D and D if I could find someone and, you know, Mm -hmm. typically, uh, yeah, typically it was not something easy to do. We didn't have the technology. We couldn't build it yet. Um, yep. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> at some point we would. And I think what's actually really cool about the area, um, even though COVID kind of hamstrung this a little bit, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Nexus Game Fair that uh, takes place in Milwaukee now.
3: No, I have not.
0: Um, that That is basically, well, geez, my power almost kind of. My Lights just good oh, okay. over here.
1: Oh, it's okay. You may um, have to just like pull things down to just life support over there. Yeah, to, to yeah. divert all power. Well, just to keep this conversation going.
0: Well, what I just can't believe is that the Nexus Game Fair even exists because you know you can walk into this place. Um, pretty much everybody's playing tabletop of some variety, and you can just walk up to a table, introduce yourself, play around, and move move on to the next. And um, so I really love the fact that you know the it's it, it took a little while for society to catch up um but we i really just think when it comes to rpgs it it was more of a, a communication thing i really do think that people always had an affinity for you know fantasy related things there's a lot of of entertainment value that's mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. um and granted there were some steps along the way that i think were really helped out by you know tolkien's works with the original inspirations behind D, but but then also the um you know, the cinematic, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings movies that came out. And yeah. I think that's really kind of creating a firestorm, you know, at that point. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's really cool though. I, I really appreciate the, the sense of community that you have with it. Cause that's really what it's all about. And, uh, yeah. it's awesome to hear you doing that, you know, years later. Um, but yeah, speaking of, uh, going back to, to Lawrence for a minute, because my, my wife is from the Appleton area. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, for Fox for their
3: River being... Valley. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: I'm not too far of that myself and I live in the Stevens Point area, so I am just nice. a small, small hop away. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I, I honestly my uh my father in law lives just off of College Avenue. And so we we get up there quite a bit. Um but I, I actually want to spend a little bit of time here because if you look through some of the wikis that are out there that cover you or um mm-hmm even just some of like the, the known Josh Sawyer stories, right? It seems like Lawrence is a, it, it's, it's always like a really quick blip, you know, in your in your life's history. And I was always curious to understand a little bit more, you know, about your time, because there's gotta be some influences that came out of that, that college that, you know, you, it was a formative time for you, right? Um, so I was, yeah, so definitely interested in hearing a little bit more Um, yeah, about your college life and what that was like.
3: Lawrence is, uh, it's always weird talking to people about Lawrence because it's weird in a lot of ways, Um, especially to people that went to like UW-Madison or something. Mm -hmm. Because Lawrence, it was and still is the most expensive school in the state. Mm -hmm. It's a, it was 1,300 students when I went there. I think it's 1,500 students now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, when, when I left, it was $23,000 a year tuition. Now I think wow. it's like almost, almost 50. It's maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's higher than that. Like it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, They're on trimesters.
2: Oh, the, okay. the, the has, has, So we have <laughs> 10, 10 mm-hmm.
3: week trimesters and then freshman studies. And you know, the whole campus is really small and granted, there are places like St. Norbert's and other like, you know, or in the, in the Carlton, uh, saint olaf if you will like you know um, there yeah. it's not like it's a it's a completely foreign thing but you know most of the people that i knew in high school went to uw madison mm-hmm. or they went to uw uw whitewater because it's That's right sweet. right <laughs> down the road Yay. we are all
4: three graduates of so. Yeah. So,
3: so is my my brother and my sister and my yeah. dad went <laughs> there um and and actually it's funny so we uh we at obsidian we have a small contingent small but consistently solid contingent of uh wisconsinites and my the producer on my project right now alec fry also went to uw whitewater nice. so oh, it's awesome. just this uh kind of funny thing but um but yeah the the lawrence difference uh all caps is uh it's an interesting <laughs> thing and it's certainly i will say you know like i've kind of said before that in a lot of interviews that i kind of wandered a lot and and i've been extremely lucky i think most of this is not most of my fortune is really fortunate it's not like i worked harder than other people or anything like if anything i probably worked less hard than a lot of people but um well because i mean in high school mm-hmm. i was not a i wasn't a di- diligent student and i became even even less diligent when i was in college And i realized i could just kind of screw around uh, figuratively <laughs> and literally, like all the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, when I went to Lawrence, uh, so I will say, my dad is an artist. My dad is a bronze sculptor. Um, if you've seen, I think if you've seen almost any sculpture it, or statues in Fort Atkinson, then you've seen my dad's sculptures. Right. Um yeah. uh, very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also sculpted the bronze fawns. That's his, almost yes. certainly his. Oh favorite. yeah, who most hasn't been with
4: with the fawns?
3: Yep. Uh, <laughs> And so I really wanted to be an artist growing up. I wanted to be an illustrator because um, I wasn't very good at sculpture <laughs> and I didn't have the patience <laughs> for it, but, but I really wanted to be an illustrator and that's really what I focused very intensely on doing until I was in high school and I kind of lost a lot of my interest for it. And um, I shifted over to focusing on music, which was something that I had done with my dad because my dad was also just a, a musician, and. Um, and I wound up actually toward the end of, of high school. I was like, Oh, I'm going to go to a school for music and theater. That's I'm going to be, a, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a musical mm-hmm. theater person for professionally. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly seems more realistic than saying I'm going to make video games. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, this is the long version of the story that I'll tell. I applied at Luther mm in decora. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's the alma mater of uh Craig Engstrom, who was my choir teacher at Fort Atkinson. Okay. And um that went really well, but it was out of state tuition. Mm-hmm. Which is it's crazy because like it was much cheaper than Lawrence, but Lawrence had much better financial aid overall. Um mm-hmm. and also decor is very pretty but it's and not, and I'm not going to try to say that like Appleton is like <laughs> the big city, but Decorah really is like out in the middle of nowhere. It really is. Yeah. I've been there. I had a
1: uh, friend, a coworker who went to Decorah, Iowa, also Luther. And yeah, it's a, definitely a small town.
3: It's a small town. It's yeah. very pretty. But I was like, <laughs> I think, I think like, and my, my family didn't have a ton of money. So I was like, okay, I'll go to, uh, I'll go to, sorry, Lawrence. Um and yeah, so I went there initially. In the I, I was in the Conservatory of Music, and I was going to be a double major in music and theater. And like I said, I was not a very diligent student going in. And the music program is very serious at Lawrence. <laughs> like <laughs> the, the conservatory is like you you got to work. Like it's it's very tough. And and it's kind of one. It's one of those schools where basically a full course load a full course load for a conservatory student in terms of hours that you actually have to work is a lot more than most other students have to do. So they're really trying to weed people out and it worked. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, I was a vocal performance major and I dropped it. I, well, I didn't drop out of the school. I dropped out of the conservatory Mm -hmm. and switched over to the college and uh, was a history major and uh i had a lot of fun i had a lot of fun at lawrence i will say i i was still not a good student um i did not take as much advantage of it as i should have um i played a lot of tabletop role-playing games while i was there there was a point in time where i was in four campaigns like i was running one and playing in three other campaigns Wow. wow so yeah you know, like I was on academic probation twice. So <laughs> um, but the thing is, it wasn't that I didn't like, I actually liked the classes. I just was not, um, I was, you know, I was like 20. I, I just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, and, and there yeah. were, there were so many things, other things to do that were fun and cool. And yeah, I just, but I still feel like I got a lot out of it, despite the fact that I didn't put as much into it as I should have. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly think that it's it is a very good school for academic like if you really want to be like yep it's serious academia time like it's a good school and um i do ultimately think that most of my critical thinking skills which are very very important to me both as a director and as a designer Mm -hmm. came from lawrence i mean that's like you know maybe i had a good instinct for it going into it but i think that the process of actually going through and getting my degree through those trials, <laughs> tripping and falling on <laughs> my face twice. Um, you know, that was uh, that was really important. And, uh, you know, obviously there was other stuff that I did there. I was on the fencing team. Uh, again, yeah. I did not take it as seriously as I should have, but I was on the, I was on the Saber fencing team and that was a lot of fun. Um, I still continued to do music and was in musicals and directed a musical while I was there, even though I wasn't actually in the conservatory anymore. Sure. And uh, Trivia Master and all that stuff. And yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I heard that uh, obviously the LeBral isn't a big part of the, the culture there as well, uh, from, from what I've been told. And then I've also heard that uh, one of the frat houses likes to fill up their basement with sand once a year and has the big beach party.
3: Yeah. So this, some of that stuff is pretty hazy to me now. Um, so yeah, I was. Can't imagine why. No, I, no. Well I actually, I didn't drink at all when I was in college. Oh. Um, okay. I, I didn't start drinking until I, I turned. I'm 45. I started drinking five years ago. Oh, after huh. you wow. left the state of Wisconsin, that's new. Yeah. Far after yeah. I left the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but uh, no. So like Phi Kappa Tau is my my fraternity and mm-hmm. our parties. We had private parties that had alcohol, but all of our like public campus parties were all dry. And Mm. I will tell you that they stayed dry because I was the sergeant at arms and I you can't tell, but I'm, I'm over six feet tall. I was six two then and I was about 250 pounds. So I couldn't really fight, but people took me seriously. Mm -hmm. So you knew how to fence. So
1: (laughs) and did you Um, did you have the uh the tats or the sleeves at that point in time?
3: no i didn't but okay. actually i i had my head was shaved and i do ha, i did have and i still do have because it's a tattoo i have the eye of horus <laughs> tattooed on the back of my oh head. that's cool oh Very i mean cool. i wouldn't mess with that yeah. no yeah so no, so no, no. Mm. I, cu- I couldn't fight like if anyone actually tried to fight me i would be dropped like a sack of bricks in a second but <laughs> i did i did successfully intimidate people into not screwing around in our house i mean they still tried it but I think I caught almost all of them. So, uh, but no, there were, there were, you know, it's still fraternity houses on a campus and there were certainly crazy parties at other houses. Um, and I can't remember, you're right. One of the fraternities, maybe it was Delta Tau Delta would fill the basement up with sand. Um, but I can't recall, it's, it's been, it's been too many years. Yeah. But <laughs> the reason I, I joined the FITA house was because it, it they they did have dry parties and most of the people in the house were fucking nerds. Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. mean, we, <laughs> we 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 had land parties uh, yes. as rush events, yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, we a lot of the people that I played role playing games with were members of that house. the The majors, it was like physics majors, conservatory majors. Um, you know, again, some of the smartest people I've met. Uh, in my life and yeah it was it was a really good experience i certainly enjoyed it a lot more than living in dorms mm-hmm. so <laughs> yes no. but it, it, it yeah. was not a party it was mm-hmm. not a party house it was the the chill the chill erudite house the gaming house <laughs> it was it was the mm-hmm. gaming house and now there yeah. is actually a gaming house at lawrence so. oh that's awesome yeah well, it's a yeah. it's a uh i think it's an officially recognized club i went and actually gave a talk and I don't know if it was 2013 around then but I went and yeah they 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 because the fraternity houses oh, geez something weird happened the Phi Tau house you know I'm going to get some of these details wrong but something happened between Phi Kappa Tau Mu, Chap, Mu chapter which is that chapter hmm. and Nationals where the Phi Tau's chose to basically dissolve their charter hmm. Um, hmm. vol- I believe volunt- like basically the the current members said we're done and I don't remember the details so I don't want to get it wrong but there was also like some of the fraternities moved out of the houses and into other houses like I know the Phi Taws moved into a different place mm-hmm. it's very complicated because again because the campus is so small Lawrence wanted everyone to be on campus mm-hmm. so the fraternity yeah. houses were all weird I'm talking a lot about this I hope that's okay no, oh, no it absolutely it's um, oh, it yeah, totally it okay mm-hmm. totally fine <laughs> but yeah so that's how that went.
1: No, that's awesome. Uh, so, like uh, college, you said you're a history major. What area, what area of history did you did you gravitate to, or did you study?
3: Uh, I really was intrigued by. Um, there was a, I wanted to even take this as a music major. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like I just sort of spun a wheel and said history. Like I was already quite interested in history mm-hmm. through theater. So like I got interested in Shakespeare's histories, which obviously are quite distorted, but you know the <laughs> the historical underpinnings of them were very interesting. And mm-hmm. when I was still a history major, I should say, I actually not only did I graduate with a minor in history, but I was the first person to graduate from Lawrence with a minor in history mm-hmm. because <laughs> minors, minors were introduced. Lawrence didn't have minors until my junior year. And I was huh. like, I'm jumping in. Cause I already got a bunch <laughs> of credit. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Uh, but like I had done a paper, for the late Fred Gaines, who was one of the uh, actually, I think he was the head of the theater department at the time, um, on Henry V, and comparing, you know, Holland's had versions of history as presented there with what we now know, know what we now know of records uh, telling about the time. So I was really interested in that idea, and then um, there's a professor at Lawrence, uh, Ed Kern. Who focuses on magic, religion, and witchcraft in the early modern era? Mm. And uh, I thought he was really cool, a good lecturer, and I was really interested in the subject matter. And I wanted to take it as, as, I wanted to take his magic religion and witchcraft course as a freshman. And he was like, wait till you're a sophomore. I was like, mm, but I'm really into it. And he's like, just wait till you're wait. a sophomore. More PG
4: 13, I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was mostly because it
3: was an upper level history course. And sure. you know, at the time I had a 1.8 grade point average. So I probably wasn't like, ooh, I gotta, I gotta get this guy in here. Um, but no, so I, I focused a lot on early modern European history. And a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff that I focused on was witch hunting, witchcraft, conceptions of it. Uh, also related, but in some ways opposite, uh, saints, hagiography, uh, the sort of construction of saints and how that evolved oh. in the church mm-hmm. over time. And uh, yeah, that was that was really what I focused on. Lawrence, Lawrence, actually, the, I think it was the first year that I started there. They changed the major so that. Mm-hmm. Ooh, like, here here's a funny story. So. <laughs> Um, the major used to be very traditionally structured. And then mm-hmm. when I was a freshman, they were like, okay, we're going to do a new thing where you pick a year and you pick a part of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. And that part of the world would be like the Americas, mm-hmm. Europe, Africa, Asia, global and comparative. And the time would be, you know, like a year, like literally like a, a thousand of the common era or like for me it was it was actually 1750 which really was a little later than it probably should have been but Mm -hmm. um and then what you had to do is you had to take the intro courses and then you had to take three courses that covered that date in different parts of the world Mm -hmm. and three courses that covered that part of the world in different time periods like distinctly different time periods and then after that then as a junior you had to take uh historiography which is the study of the study (laughs) of history
1: well that's very meta that's very
3: yeah it's like how did we get here academically and then after that you do seminar courses and things like that Mm -hmm. but what happened is something happened in my class my my cohort where they were like this is the easy way so what they did is a bunch of not me i didn't do this because i, oh, I just took the out. courses that i was like <laughs> pas- passionate about mm-hmm. yeah. um and but a lot of these people were like you know we can take a bunch of low-level courses that are like easy that cu- that fulfill these requirements and it's like easy easy train hmm, so they yeah. did that and then they went into historiography Oof. And it was like mm-hmm. they got hit in the face with a frying pan. Yeah, I want to. want to say that like two thirds of my class failed historiography the first Ooh, time they took it. They didn't wow. pass
4: the knowledge check. No, it was, it was it was very it was very
3: severe because like um, basically they had been very. Again, not that I was that that serious, but I was more serious, especially in my major.
2: Mm-hmm. But yeah. a lot
3: of these people came in and they were like, "Holy shit, this is like really hard." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, dude, it's an upper level. Like this, it's real time. Like it's, this is the major. Like you're doing the and it, yeah, it was it was quite a wake up call. And I think a lot of people were like, "Ooh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to the speed up on were this." Made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, so is this
1: also um where you discovered
3: your fandom for frog helms was during this time? Um, where did that come from? I, I'm trying to. I wonder if I can pinpoint it exactly. Um. No, I think you know, like especially playing like early D and D was mm-hmm. so kind of obsessed with the minutiae of. You know, like first edition D and D had stats for like thirty different types of pole arms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like it's like really into all these minute differences and things and illustrated all of them. And some somewhere somehow like frog helms Mm -hmm. came up and they're just so funny looking (laughs) and um, (laughs) they're very funny looking and they're really Mm -hmm. very purpose built. And I've had debates with people. I don't really think there's a debate, but they're they're (laughs) jousting helmets. They're really made Mm -hmm. for jousting. Mm -hmm. And some people will argue that they were used for just like regular battle. And I'm like, I don't think so because, I think they'd be <laughs> because they, were, they were like riveted. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's no, if you look at them, there's no articulation. So the, the frog helm thing, it's, they come straight up, straight yeah. up. Yeah. There's no articulation. Mm-hmm. So your head can rotate inside of it, but it's not like there's a articulated base or anything. And the reason mm-hmm. they did that is because if you got hit by a lance in the neck or the head, you do not want your head to move at all. Like Mm-mm. you would, mm-hmm. you would rather get knocked off the horse because if your head, like you would snap your neck, like you would right. just yeah. die. So the solution was a frog helm, and it and it's it's angled like that because it makes it very unlikely that the lance will, you know, it's like you can still see out of it, but it's super mm-hmm. high and weird. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's just it's it's purpose built for it. And every time I see it, it just looks funny to me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I like them.
0: So it meant to yeah. say that A night's mm-hmm. Tale was bullshit then from from everything. <laughs> you know what?
3: I, I was so, I I feel bad. I, I need to go back and make amends by this, but because that was like a mid-90s. Was that like a 95 or something like that? <sighs> I, I, something I say, like yeah, that? Maybe yeah. late 90s? Yeah. I was, I was Somewhere getting, in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was getting really angsty about um, history distortion in movies at the time. Cause, Cause I was a yeah. history major and, and like, and so and, and all of the movies and were bad. Braveheart, like Braveheart was really big and oh, yeah. it made me really mad for a lot of reasons. Um, so around that time, like any movie that really felt like it was being silly or like goofy with history. I was like, I'm not going to see that. And so Knight's Tale, mm-hmm. I was just like, no fucking way. Like not, <laughs> not going to see it. And I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. So oh, I need uh... to, well, yeah, I've I've heard people say like, no, no, it's actually cool. I'm like, nah. yeah. well,
1: well, I'm pretty maybe. sure that that no neck articulation thing was the inspiration for Tim Burton's Batman costume as well. Yeah, like, Batman yeah. doesn't need to turn his head; nope. he's jousting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Before we get too far away from Braveheart, I just want to say the Battle of Sterling did not occur in some you know epic you know halfway across a battlefield thing. It it was literally like an assault over a bridge. You know, they're crossing a bridge and they got attacked. And I mean, it's there's only so much you can expect from Mel Gibson in an action movie, let alone a historical (laughs) film. So, um, (laughs) but but tell you what, um, before we leave Lawrence, I wanted to do something kind of interesting because I I, I have an old friend of yours that, that checked in with us. Cool. And there's a a couple things that I want to show you here. Um, So let me actually do this real quick. Some sharing. Yeah. I'm going to share something with you. So here's, here's a, a quick preview. So for those, those of you that can't see this because we're, we're a podcast or we're, we're not uh we're, we're not doing a video here um i want to show you this josh because it, for those of you who are listening at home what we're looking at is a a box with a sticker on the side that says appleton recycles uh, josh is this shaking any memories loose for you
3: i feel bad because it's not <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just
1: it's just a city's commitment to to a cleaner earth that's all we have right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know I,
3: I I'm not I'm not recalling it. I feel bad. But it, it has been like 22 years. So
0: Okay. And I I was that's why I wanted to show you this this photo first. So I'm going to I'm going to turn we're going to go away from that one. So here is the second photo which should definitely I would hope would shake a few things loose. And I'll, I'll describe the photo here in just a moment.
3: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll let
0: Josh do it on his own if you want.
3: Um, that is my full size tower. That is um, when I was at Lawrence. So you know, again, I said that our house was like the the game the gamer house, <laughs> and um, you know, building your own PCU was like really huge then, and I had like a mid size tower, but I wanted to jam like I wanted a uh, i had two one gigabyte which at the time was crazy i had two mm-hmm. one gigabyte micropolis mm-hmm. scuzzy drives <laughs> you know. um so they were fast and they were big and they were so loud like they were not <laughs> like like unbelievable like so obnoxious and the only like you know i'm embarrassed now but like as a as a 20 year old i was like Totally yeah. fine, man. <laughs> Listen um, to that baby purr. <laughs> yep, yeah, like, I, I can jam so much stuff on these. But I mean, it—you turn it on, you could hear it from like fifty feet away. It was crazy, <laughs> um, and so it was a full. But but they were f- like a full size drive is like two of those, or, or like two. Um, it's like two of those slots high. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So
3: really big, and then I also had like a CD-ROM in there and a few other things, and like I played Quake all the time. and is this a so either this is a current picture like someone had this someone someone kept this awful thing or this is a picture from the late (laughs) 90s and i was fucking disgusting because it (laughs)
1: it, it looks nasty i mean
3: i was kind of gross i was kind of a, a a grosso in college but uh this is looking pretty bad. Well, I mean, the uh,
1: yellowing—that's that's all just accenting and texture adding. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no.
0: Yeah. Once again, since we're a podcast and we don't have the video that'll go with this until later, we will post um, the
1: picture along with the episode.
0: Yeah, this this will be posted. So uh, we're looking at the behemoth. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Because it's 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 stylized. Bohemiath.
3: Bo- yeah, I can't Bo- remember Bo- where, ho- where <laughs> that name came from. It was like a f- a funny, funny in quotation marks pronunciation. Um. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember, but yeah, Bohemia, Bohemiaf, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, So,
0: to, so to answer your question, um, this tower would actually have a bit of a journey after you left college because, um, I I don't know the name specifically, but I believe it went to your friend Matt, and I, I can't remember Matt's last name because I obviously don't know Matt. Matt but Cooked, the, maybe. That actually sounds right. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> or so, could be yeah.
0: yep. so he had the tower and then it ended up with uh Chris Schmidt's roommate after that, and now it is safely being stored with Chris if you ever wanted to reclaim it because this, this is actually a recent photo.
3: <laughs> okay, that that does make me feel better. It does make me feel better because like like I said, I was not exactly the most clean living guy. Uh, I in college, it was college. Yeah. yeah. I know, but yeah. Uh, Still, so you may like, hey, remember how shitty you were? I'm like, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. You, you may... yeah I do yeah.
3: thank you. Photographic evidence <laughs> is also helping remind me. Thank you. You may want to yeah, take. Have
1: you a... seen a picture that just looks sticky by looking at it? But that <laughs> yeah. looks a little sticky.
3: That yeah, that looked that looked pretty nasty. So yeah. played <laughs> that on Chris.
0: <laughs> Let's get a toothbrush and a little bit of diet coke, and we'll just we'll just start taking Go that time off.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, to to shift gears away from. From Lawrence for a moment. So you know, I I consider myself a cat whisperer. I've been around cats for a very long time. Um, now I understand you have the animal friend perk in real life, though that you're you're a big animal guy, and uh, would love to hear about the animals in your life.
3: Yeah. So growing up, uh, my parents always had we always had a dog and multiple cats, and for some reason, I never really like bonded with the dogs as much. Like I liked them, but I was more of a cat person. And, uh, I have, I now have, uh, and as an adult for a long time, I didn't have pets. And I had a girlfriend who had a really beautiful white cat. And after we were living together for a while, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I want to get a cat too. So I adopted this, uh, it was basically my, my girlfriend's cousin opened the door one night and a stray cat ran in. Mm-hmm. And immediately ran into their laundry room and ran behind their dryer and gave birth. Like, wow. Like, like she was ready to go. I think they had been like feeding her and she had been like lingering around and they opened the door and she was just like, time, time to do this. Oh yeah, She's
1: having the baby right now. Yeah. And she had had
3: two kittens and I took one of them, Sesame. And she is, uh, I can't remember exactly when she was born. So I celebrate her birthday on Labor Day um which is a movable a movable feast um but she's uh 13 she'll be turning 14 and she's very very sweet and then my girlfriend has a two and a half ish year old chihuahua pug named coco well named cornelius but we call him coco (laughs) and he is a real sweet guy and uh, my parents have four they've had up to six maybe seven at one time like dogs like between fostering and just their dogs Mm -hmm. but they have a lot of little dogs um like dachshunds and terriers and things like that Ah. and uh yeah coco is a little teeny chihuahua pug and he's very cute and very sweet and he's just finally kind of growing up and calming down and not being completely crazy all the time (laughs) But, but um i finally have uh for The first time in my life, like really bonded with a dog, yeah. And uh, even though even though he is very much my girlfriend's dog, <laughs> uh, I i love him and and he's <laughs> yeah. and he's very he's very friendly to me, so um, there's a concern. I, th- I i think there's like a strong chihuahua trait of being like one person dogs, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Coco is uh, Coco loves everybody, he's a super friendly <laughs> dog, he's very sweet, he he wants to go up and I was recently, some friends came down and we all went out to eat and he was crying because he wanted to be on basically everyone's lap. And like, so he, like he would be on my lap and then he would cry and then I'd pick him up and put him on someone else's lap and then he'd cry and I'd bring him back to my lap. (laughs) But yeah, he's a, he's a real, real sweet guy. So got those two and, and the dog harasses the cat and the cat more or less tolerates it, um, it's probably good for her <laughs> so she gets some exercise but <laughs> but she's she's 13 years old and he's two so it's yeah you know, it's a little tough yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, well looking at going back to history for just a moment and then we'll we'll kind of get into some other things here but you know as a as a a son of a military officer I spent a lot of time in in museums uh, going to historical battlefields and when we looked at um, we just kind of checked out your Twitter the other day and I noticed that you had a lot of pictures from um, the J. Paul Getty uh, Museum. So I was curious, because obviously with COVID, things got, you know, pretty uh, pretty nuts as far as opening things to the public, as, as we all can imagine. But I was curious to understand, you know, how much of your time is actually spent visiting museums based on your background? And, and, and I mean, you're obviously pretty well-traveled. So um, ultimately, yeah, I mean, how much time are you typically spending in museums like the Getty museum and, and others.
3: I mean, as a percentage of my life, not that much, but, um, (laughs) but like, I think more than the average person, like I really, I really enjoy going to museums, especially art museums. And, um, yeah, like I've been to the Getty. Geez, Like at least half a dozen times, probably like closer to 10 times, uh, for various exhibits. And I was, I was saying to my, um, so I went, we went up there, uh, I went up with some of the people on my team and I was saying, I always like going to an art museum as a date because if the person is not into going to a museum as a date, see you later. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that Joe, you think, can implement that one. Yeah. Like if, yeah. if they're, if they're like, I don't like art or I think museums are boring. I'm like, I mm-hmm. think, uh, you suck. Bye. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, like I, I just, my, you know, my my dad is a, an, an artist. Like I'll, when I was growing up, my dad had a lot of art history books around and I would just read them because they were around and I, I, I thought they were interesting. So um, I really like going to museums um, many, well, I shouldn't say many years ago. At the end of 2015, my then girlfriend and I went to, who is an art teacher, went to Munich and then Salzburg and then Vienna. And we went to so many museums in Vienna because I, I really like um, Klimt, the classic, of course, mm-hmm. and then uh, Egon Schiele, who is a little less well known. But in terms of Viennet, uh, Viennese artists, those two guys, who were contemporaries, uh, they're at the top of the list. But the mm-hmm. problem is, much like Italian museums um, in Italy, or uh, sorry, uh, in Vienna. If you want to see Klimt's, you're going to have to go to like six or seven museums. And if you Mm -hmm. want to see Sheila's, you're going to go to six or seven different museums because they're not all at one museum. Mm -hmm. So you're going to go to like the Albertina and then you're going to go to the Belvedere and then you're going to go to this place. and Then you're going to go to that place. (laughs) And I got to the point where my girlfriend at the time was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. (laughs) She's like, look, they're cool, but I can't. She's like, I'm an artist and I can't go to any more museums. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I love them. I love them. And uh, and not just sort of the classics. Like, I love romantic era, you Mm -hmm. know, late 19th century, but all sorts of art from, you know, medieval art all the way to modern contemporary. I love going to LACMA in Los Angeles, the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. So, yeah, I I love museums. I've always loved art, Um, you know, between between my dad and my my first like long-term girlfriend who i was with for almost 12 years and as an artist i like so much of my life has been with professional working artists mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. yeah so love museums nice
1: and so is is your dad still like sculpting um or is no he, my dad is he retired okay
3: he is retired um mm-hmm. he makes he makes digital art um mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he might occasionally take small commissions, okay. but nothing on, like, the scale of the, of the fonts. He's in his 70s now. Gotcha. Um, so he, yeah, he does digital art. He loves Photoshop. He loves doing crazy nice. photo, photo mm-hmm. manipulations and things like that. Uh, but, yeah. Fun, yeah. Um, I just
1: figured out uh, after current events, Milwaukee may, may, may want another brand sculpture of, you know, it's not a Yeah. Uh, time,
3: yeah. To, time to commemorate the yeah. Bucks. Yeah. I mean, the last mm-hmm. time they won a championship was before I was born. Mm-hmm. And yep. <laughs> I kind of feel like when you're growing up in Wisconsin, it's like Packers. And you're like, oh, you got yeah. the Brewers and the Bucks. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, you know yeah. like, like mm-hmm. you know, like, because in the in the early 80s, you know, like, it was Raleigh Fingers, Robin Yount. Like, there were yeah. some notable folks, but like, it never really was like that serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bucks were. I went to Bucks games a few and yeah, I never really like when I heard in the, in the buildup, cause I don't really watch sports anymore. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. the buildup to the Bucks being in the championship. I'm like, no, what? it's not, <laughs> no, like, like, yeah, I know people are saying <laughs> mm-hmm. that, but this is like the Cubs where they're, you know, like yeah, but yeah. then like the Cubs, they did. They it. They finally won it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, what, I always,
2: mm-hmm. what I
0: always love to say is, you get into fist fights over talking the Packers, right? But you get into an impolite dust up when it comes to the Bucks and the Brewers because yeah. it's just yeah. it's just hard to keep a whole lot of emotion in that fight, right? You're like, yeah. It's like, why are we doing this? What What are we doing right now? You know, let's, let's there. move on.
3: Yep, <laughs> yeah. on. And I think. Yeah. And I think I remember because, uh, God, when was the the new Miller Stadium built? Uh, oh God, Miller Park. He-
4: 2002 yeah,
2: yeah it was close mm-hmm. enough to
3: when i left that it was like a thing and people were kind of like do we got to do this like <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're like look i understand that we have uh a major league team here but mm-hmm. yeah do we really gotta do it? I this? mean, we can just go
1: see what our tax dollars just paid for, maybe.
3: <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm a patron
0: of this park. I would like to see its wares.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, speaking of, of heading on out to, to California, um, you know, ironically enough, at the time uh around your college days, um, that was actually when my family and I lived out there. And so we would actually uh, go to LA every now and again because my my family lived that way. With my my mother's um family lives out there. So yes,
1: California way.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. We got the wagon and we went on out West and didn't so, die
4: of dysentery.
0: No, I got it, but I didn't die of it. Um, <laughs> but but ultimately um, it's curious to understand because uh, obviously it sounds like it's, it makes a lot of sense to go that direction just because that's where all of these companies are. That's where the technology is. Right. But um, I was interested to to understand a little bit about how, you know, you you landed your first job because I understand that you were actually in uh, roughly about sixty different people for your first position for consideration. Yeah. Uh, so I was curious to understand how you separated yourself there.
3: Yeah, uh, again, extremely good luck and timing. Like, so I had to stay because I switched my major and I was on academic probation twice. I had to stay two extra terms which is not a full Mm. year. It's Lawrence. (laughs) So I had to say two extra terms um, to finish my major and my minor. And um, so I was graduating in March. And so I was graduating with a history degree and a theater minor with a 2.4 GPA. And I was like, you don't know what I'm going to do with this. Like for the first (laughs) time. And I had been doing, I had taught myself HTML because this is the middle of the Mm nineties. So I taught myself HTML and I got pretty good. I wouldn't say I was actually like a great web designer, but like I knew how to do it pretty handily and quickly and a decent amount of like photo editing stuff. And, um, so I was making websites on the side, like I was doing, you know, like professional, but you know, still fairly amateurish, but I was being paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I designed the tattoo or the, um, sorry, the website for Steve's tattoo Mm -hmm. in Madison Mm -hmm. and in exchange for, Tattoo work. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and I, like when I was down there, I saw how the apprenticeship uh, system worked and I was like, you know what? Like maybe I could use my illustration experience because I still was kind of doing art every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I could like be an apprentice because I talked to them about like what's involved. And they're like, oh yeah, this and that. I'm like, well, I mean, maybe I could do web stuff and be a tattooing apprentice at Steve's. And then, you know, cause now I know the people at the studio. Mm hmm that was my like plan and you know, it's like I've told people that I knew that I was going to make table, tabletop role-playing games Mm -hmm. because I just did that in my free time. I didn't put together like, no, this is like a job or -hmm. like, if it was a job, I wasn't like, oh, this is my profession. So I didn't, I didn't have that sense of, oh, a game designer is like a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was the thing where I was like, no, I'm, well, I'm going to make, I'm going to make my own. Cause I was already doing it in college. I had like three or two or three different systems. My friend Jeremy Strandberg uh, who just had a great uh, Kickstarter campaign for a game that he's working on. Um, he was making his own system. I'm like, yeah, no problem. But I never thought about video gaming. And then my friend Michael Donnelly said like, Hey, by the way, Interplay Black Isle studios mm-hmm. in California, <laughs> they have a web position open for some new role-playing game. Like, why don't you apply for it? It seems like you, you fit the qualifications. So I sent a really obnoxiously long cover. Like, you know, and again, don't do this. I sent like a four page (laughs) cover letter. It was really rambling, um, about like all my opinions about like where role playing games, like it was very dumb, but I mean, from it they took that. I was passionate about the field, I guess. Um, but I, the, the, my, my ringer thing was I knew flash. I knew Flash Mm -hmm. 3, which at the time was like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, moving shit and music and (laughs) long, long load times that people with modems hate. Um, But it was the hot thing and marketing departments really wanted to see Flash in their websites. And I knew it. And yeah, like there were were like, I think 62 candidates and three of us knew Flash or at least listed Flash on our resume. Mm -hmm. And their first choice was a guy who, I mean, from what I understand, he's probably a lot better than me, but he uh, wanted to move to be with his girlfriend in Seattle, so he couldn't take the job. So I was, oh, wow. I was the second choice, and that's that's how I got it.
1: Well, I mean, second's the best, from what the old rhyme used to say, anyway. Mm-hmm. So
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was the
3: one who got the job. So well,
0: that's awesome. Because uh, I mean, yeah, like you've mentioned before, sometimes it's it's about where you are and. I still think that you know, with that four-page cover letter, you know, you, you still positioned yourself to be there, you know, and 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 to get noticed. But that kind of leads me into um, trying to understand a little bit more about you know your your creative process and the methodologies you picked up along the way. Because from from everything that I've read about within game development, and honestly, just a lot of first jobs in general, um, sometimes you're not given the best direction right like you're kind of thrown to the wolves sometimes you're expected to figure it out and and go find the information you need go find the help you need right so i was curious to understand if if your experience in the gaming industry was about the same in the beginning like did you did you end up having uh like a good path to follow or was this kind of choose your own adventure
3: it was uh it took a village like um there wasn't really formal mentorship at black Isle. Um, Keep in mind, this is 1999. So, you know, I wouldn't say the game industry was like brand new, but like processes are still being formed and there's a lot of just ad hoc do whatever. (laughs) And, um, and so, yeah, Icewind Dale was the first game I worked on and it was a game that had no leads. There were no leads on the project. It was just, there was a producer, Chris Parker and everyone else was like a junior to a senior but there were no leads. So we all just somehow kind of worked out what game we were going to make without leads, which is crazy. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But we, I think the fact that it was a D and D game and we were using the infinity engine and it was in the forgotten realms. It, it answered a lot and it framed what we were doing pretty easily. Hmm. Like it wasn't like, Hey, are we going to make a sci-fi game? No, like we're (laughs) we're making a dungeon crawler in the Baldur's gate engine in 14 months which is what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So people just, you know, individual people showed me how to do things and what to do. And, you know, like I'd say, how do I do this stuff in dialogue? And one person would tell me, and then like, how do I do this in the level editor? How do I edit things in the stat files? And okay. And so like individual people taught me and, and, then when other people had questions i would answer things for them especially mm-hmm. when it came to like the rules or the lore because i yeah i think it's fair to say colin mccomb who was a, a designer who worked on planescape torment um he and i probably had the most in-depth knowledge of dnd and the forgotten realms at the studio mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um colin wasn't on the project so i was like the de facto expert on second edition dnd d sorry and uh, forgotten realms <laughs> so uh yeah we all just we all just helped each other out and in a way it's you know you could say it was like being thrown to the wolves but there was a everyone was very willing to help each other out because that's how they learned so it wasn't a real structured mentorship system and the team was small enough that you could do that there was there was so little overhead that you really had to be laterally aware of what everyone else was doing like if something in my area was being referenced by Reg Arnato, who was another designer, Mm -hmm. like we had to talk through that and work it out. Um, So it was pretty rare that someone was doing something that everyone else on the team didn't know about. Uh, So very good esprit de corps. (laughs) And uh, and yeah, just, just a good, a good combination of circumstances that as always that uh, worked out in the end.
0: Yeah, it was one of those things I was interested in digging into because um, you know I, I used to work in engineering staffing, and so everybody loves to talk about methodologies on the interviews. But then when you actually start divvying out tasks and planning out jobs, um, you, you can call it whatever methodology you want. But a lot of times it's just get shit done. Like you, yeah. we can have we can have the meetings, we can call the methodology whatever we want. But uh, sometimes it just becomes the worst group project ever. And you know, not everybody's pulling the same weight every day, but ultimately you know, you get the job done. So um, one of the things that I did read into, this is a a little bit ago was how in a game of D and D that you were playing. um, And I've titled this as part of our notes here for a reason where you told your, (laughs) your, your, your your GN for the game that I don't just throw a fireball to the face of this boss that you're reading this giant exposition for. And, and, and so that idea of choice and, And crafting games with that in mind, I was curious to understand if you kept that mentality from day one, or if this changed along with your career as you, you know, continued to kind of climb the ladder and go through different, different roles.
3: No, I think I've kept it the entire time. I mean, at first it was sort of a naivete. It was kind of like, I think that we can approximate if we work hard and plan well we can approximate the feeling of being at the table and having that level of freedom and choice to do, mm-hmm. do what we want to do. And obviously like the first game I worked on Icewind Dale was pretty linear. Mm-hmm. It was also very aggressive and short, so we couldn't really do that. Same with um, Icewind Dale two. But by the time I got to work on fall at new Vegas, I still was embracing the same mentality where I was like, um, you know, I, I want to let people fireball, the guy in the face like you get one <laughs> chance there was a rule in new vegas which I've, I've said many times which was basically if you like hit a trigger or open a door and someone comes through it they get that conversation and they're fine and then once that conversation ends if the player has a line of sight to them they have to be the we we, we must allow the player to kill them and if it's special circumstances you can put them behind an intercom Mm -hmm. or you can put them behind like reinforced glass or something like that but for the most part i just said like no like let the player do what they want to do because that's that's what we do in tabletop is i mean some dms i think violate the spirit by like you know plot critical npcs that you can't kill but i think i think that the the, the true spirit is to kind of just let what happens happen and have the world react in a way that seems plausible. And that's what players enjoy is the ability to like poke at that. And they don't want to do it all the time, but when they want to do it, they want to do it. And Mm. um, so to accommodate that, you must allow them to do it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's really, that mentality has always And obviously like my understanding of how to make that happen or how to support that ways in which you complicate that or make it impossible. um, That's with experience. I've learned what's necessary to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always carried that idea that at our best, we're creating a single player role playing game with no DM present that can capture the spirit of letting you play the playing your character, the way you mechanically have defined them and Mm -hmm. personality-wise, how you've defined them, and that the story reacts to that. So I can say I have built this character mechanically, and I can play the game in this way, and it's rewarding in a way that feels, if not unique to me, certainly different than a lot of the other ways you play the game. And also, I have an idea for a personality of this character that I can not only express, but then the story takes that and feeds it back to me so it feels meaningful. Even if the overall story doesn't change that push and pull Feels like when you're sitting at a table and saying, like, I smack this guy in the face, you are like, oh, my God, he freaks out and all this, like, mm-hmm. you know, or like, I'm a smooth talker, I, ch- I charm the pants off this guy, like, you know, whatever, like, whatever that fantasy is, mechanically and personality wise, uh just trying to make that come true, which is a big challenge, but that's, that's the at the heart of everything that I've been trying to do.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, something that can definitely uh, take a player back a little bit when they're not used to being able to do that, because, for instance, in Outer Worlds, <laughs> when you run into the first uh, character you can physically interact with and you piss the him once in the face and he just drops dead. <laughs> totally just throws you back. You're not sure what to do after that.
0: So, I may or may not have done that, Josh. I mean, <laughs> I, I I was <laughs> half of it was trying to understand how did pistol whipping work, but I still had to (laughs) live. It works
1: really well, as it turns out.
0: (laughs) Had to live with that consequence, Um, but you know, ultimately, on the topic of Fallout New Vegas, um, you've answered a lot of questions on Fallout New Vegas. Um, But one of the things that I, I I actually took quite a bit of interest in was watching you do your live play for charity, and one of the most interesting stories that came out of the amount of time you're playing the game had to do with your, your prep. And uh, one of the trips that you took to a very special Canyon that you told a, a near death experience story with, Mm -hmm. I was, I was really interested to understand a little bit more about this experience for you, because um, for those that haven't seen this live stream, I will actually link it in the, in the episode notes here where you actually tell this story. Pretty harrowing though. I mean it's it's literally a survival story, near death experience. And I was interested to understand uh what came out of that for you as a as a creator and a developer, because I imagine that has to at least give you a couple different angles from the prep you had done before.
3: Yeah. I mean, basically I was not I was not as prepared <laughs> as I should have been, like materially and sort of mentally. Um you know, I had a really nice, I had this really nice, uh, day pack. Like, so gear wise, I had a lot of good stuff, but I didn't really have, like I had not done overnight trips before. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not really do a diligent, I didn't do diligence about like my nutrition or Mm -hmm. water. Uh, actually, no, I did do some, I did diligence on water. I just, kind. well, I'm not going to say I ignored it on the last day, but like, The nutrition problem is what caused the hydration problem in the end. Mm -hmm. So um, it's and it's it's also deceptive because the beginning of that trail. So I was backcountry. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I was Mm backcountry hiking in Zion. And so instead of going to the Zion Valley and exploring the Narrows and all that stuff or Angels Mm -hmm. Landing, I was starting at the western end of the park called Canyon Canyon and then coming in mm-hmm. and when you first come in you go past uh Lever- I think it's Laverkin Creek and it's very lush and it's still hot but like because it's along a uh creek that's pretty fast flowing you're like oh water cool like yeah. what a is bount- paradise and then from there you go over to something called Hop Valley which is a big uh meadow with uh free-ranging cattle And, um, the river goes through that. And then when you climb up out on top of that, then you're getting more into like proper Zion, like pretty dry. And yeah, I like, you know, I, i had had a concussion like about a few months earlier Mm -hmm. playing soccer. (laughs) Um, But I hit my head twice on the first day hiking or no, uh, once on the first day. And then again, on the second day, Uh, like in in the same spot both times (laughs) um, where I'd had the concussion. So I was like, holy crap. I almost stepped on a rattlesnake (laughs) on the second day and I got in. And so I had this idea of going all the way to the rim and I don't remember exactly what happened, but I was like, no, I should turn around and go back. And yeah, I, I, hiked out and the long and short of it is I didn't bring enough nutrition So I was, I had a calorie deficit of like 2000 calories, Mm. but I didn't uh, register it physically. Mm -hmm. But what was happening is I was sweating all the salt in my body out. Mm -hmm. And on the last day, something got in me where I was like, I'm going to hike out of the valley today. Like from, I had hiked 24 miles in, in three days. Jeez. And then I was like, I'm going to hike back out today. I did, but I did almost actually die. Wow. And it was it was because um, I suffered hypotonic dehydration, mm-hmm. which is basically basically there's no salt left in your body. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but mm-hmm. like your body can't retain water. So I was drinking water at this because I was hiking so fast um, and I was drinking water. And then within minutes of running out of water, because I didn't realize I was, I was sweating it out almost as soon as I consumed it. Cause I was mm-hmm. just filthy. <laughs> and when I did run out within five minutes, my throat started swelling shut mm. and like, and immediately I was in incredible pain. Like I felt great the whole day. That's why I was like, like in my mind, I was like, I'm going to get home tonight. Like I'm going to, I'm going to hike out of the Canyon 24 miles. Then I'm going to get into my car at night and I'm going to drive all the way back to Orange County. That's how, comp- like, <laughs> how confident I was, <laughs> and um, I did get out of the valley, but like I, I at one point I fell on my hands and knees because I was I was like, and I, I really thought I was gonna die. I had no food left. Wow. I had no water. Mm-hmm. It was um, when I saw when I saw like wet mud, I was like, can I suck on this? No. Like oh, I mean, like no. very certain. Oh. It, was, it was it was very desperate. Like that's why I'm saying it, I'm not. Like I really, I really was very close to, I could barely walk. Like it was very yeah. bad. And thankfully some other hikers came across me and gave me water and helped me get out. But the things that I learned, so I gained a lot of appreciation for Zion as a place, which yeah. I had seen, you know, obviously, you know, I, I was familiar with the Narrows and I camped mm-hmm. there once before in angels landing, but like the whole landscape of it being a very, you know, like having these lush areas around the water Mm -hmm. and then high and low parts and like the great variety to it. It's just, it's beautiful all over. So I gained a great appreciation for that. And, um, and just how dangerous really it, it is to be alone out there and like trying to survive in a place like that, which Mm -hmm. I think, you know, like obviously survive, you know, surviving is, is a, um, a theme of the, of the whole series, but I think Mm -hmm. it just gave me a little more of a personal connection to it. And the other thing I'll say is it traumatized me about dehydration, Mm -hmm. like to this day. Mm -hmm. So, so I went, I want to say like a year or two or something after that experience, I saw 127 hours.
2: Oh Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I mean, I knew what it was about, but there's the scene where he's like, the scene where he's stuck so there's a, scene where, scene. There's a yeah. scene where he imagines kind of like flying not physically but like his his perspective like flying out of the crevasse mm-hmm. and going all the way back to his truck and like into a bottle of water that he knows is in the back of it
2: mm-hmm.
3: like that is exactly like that is exactly the feeling that I had when I was dehydrated. Like I was just like envisioning flying, like, like astrally projecting back to my, cause I had water in the back of my thing and it was such a hair. Like I, I don't really usually have very strong reactions watching movies. Like, I mean, I get emotional or whatever, but this was one where I was like, oh yeah that's really real like that's very 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 real and like whoo! and um yeah there was something recently i was at where i ran a little low on water and it's like basically as soon as i really start feeling dehydration i i freak out like oh it was um i did a i did a bike ride on the solstice in angeles forest and i ran out of water with like a mile to go and even though it was only a mile i was like almost hyperventilating because I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to die. And like, but there were all these people around, so there wasn't really a, a real chance of that happening, but because of that trauma, I was like, Oh my God, like I need water right now. Yeah. So yeah, great experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Thanks for so, bringing that up, Mark. Yeah, uh, I mean, hey. it
4: sounds like
1: a perfect vacation. Um, yeah. uh,
0: the reason why I wanted to bring it up, and and this isn't to necessarily you know bring up too many traumatic experiences, Josh, right. but it, it was it was because when I heard that, even though this live stream you can't see the faces of the people who are listening in, I mean, I thought this was something that everybody felt the same way about. We we heard you tell the story, and. It makes you realize just how quickly things can change. I mean, and not just in life, but I mean, I don't want to say that life's a video game, but in a lot of ways, you're basically playing survival mode every day, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: so, so to that point, that's where um, the three of us on our show um, last week and, and the week before, we were actually debating a little bit about the heart and soul of RPGs because there's a a big difference. If you especially track from the earliest days of RPGs as they evolved into video games, and then what we have now, some people like the action based RPG. Some prefer the turn based. Um, Obviously you've got experience with both. Um, And especially with the rise of isometric games, again, being, you know, there's people who love these games. Still, we were all trying to figure out in our minds, what is an actual RPG by definition? Um, and so I was actually interested to ask you about this because I feel like out of, out of the, the people I know and the people I've been introduced to, you're going to be one of the most qualified <laughs> to answer this question. Um, but yeah, as far as the lifeblood of an RPG goes, I mean, I, I, where do you really fall on defining it within this action and turn-based you know uh, world we kind of live in?
3: Yeah, I will say, um, I recently had this discussion with someone else where I basically said that I don't, I don't really care what individual people think about the definition of RPG. Like, it's not something that I have any interest in fighting over. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that when I say that I want to make RPGs, in my mind, it's, I can define two things, two categorical things, my mechanical role, which Mm is varied and allows me to have a different experience mechanically in the game Mm -hmm. and personality wise, which allows me to influence the story in different ways that feel meaningful. And if I have those two things, it can be a first person shooter. It can be turn-based top down. it can be a tactics game. Really? Mm -hmm. Like it could be a bunch of different stuff. Like it could be modern day. It could be urban fantasy. Could be biblical role-playing. Like it could be whatever, like I don't, I don't think it's specific to the, the setting really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like a game like disco Elysium is actually a really, really, really great example of how no, like, if you looked at it, someone initially might be like, what, like, what in the world is that if you play it, it's very clearly a pure RPG, even though there's virtually no combat in it. And the only combat that is there is not combat in the way that you would normally Mm -hmm. think of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the setting is very esoteric and unique. So it's, it's not fantasy. It's a little sci-fi ish maybe, but it's more like just an alternate world. Yeah. Um, but it's a role-playing game. It's a role-playing game and it, uh, that's all that I need in it. So like if it can be a, it can be a fast paced, clicky Diablo style thing, mm-hmm. except the Diablo, Diablo doesn't really allow you to influence the story in any meaningful way. So that would feel and this isn't about like a gatekeeping thing it's just yeah if you if you said to me hey josh do you want to make a diablo i would say like mechanically i think that's cool but i would like to do something where you could do something in the story maybe not constantly because that would be against the spirit of the loop the action (laughs) loop but maybe there are like specific story junctures where at the end of chapters I can like do things and see cool endings and I'm like yeah okay that's a role playing game if it feels like I really have a character with a personality that I can play out that I def that I define and the story really meaningfully changes then yeah sure I'd make a game like that same thing with the tactics game like you know yeah. if you took if you took a game like Final Fantasy Tactics but you added in a layer of because you know it's funny. I, either people, a lot of people haven't played tactics or they kind of forget, but like a lot of people for good reason think that the story in tactics is one of the best stories in the final fantasy franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could, I'm not going to say easily, but like, I think you could take that structure and put in like branching narrative choices at, at those conversations. Obviously that's a bunch of work, but that would be like really cool to see like, you know, I, uh, actually, a, a great example of this would be the banner Sa- uh, banner saga series. Banner Saga is essentially a a strategic RPG, tactical RPG, but it has story moments where you have to make these critical this or that decisions. And it has Mm -hmm. big impact on the story. So that to me is a role-playing game. And the fact that it's whether it's grid based or arena based, or I don't personally, I don't care about any of that stuff. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and fair enough. And that's, that's honestly, that's where we really got into the same, territory if you guys remember from our episode on like literally breaking them both down we kind of came at it going there are certain games that were turn based that we really loved that we wished would have stayed that way but they shifted towards action and occasionally you have them where you can toggle between both, both right um, but moving away from uh, some of the the titles that did this um, that's really where we kind of got caught up was and we called out Final Fantasy 15 specifically not because we were trying to tear them down but more because we were reminded of the experiences we had being able to like you mentioned make these tactical choices and do these things as opposed to smashing a button until something stops moving yeah. you know it's it's mm-hmm. that's what brought us to RPGs and so um, I'm not saying I needed to hear it validated or anything but it's 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 refreshing to hear your take on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, I mean, it's kind of like a, yeah. like the love of like a, being able to really have an impact on the world you're playing in or the story that you're a part of. I mean it's part of the same reason like we love like the Telltale games. Like yeah. there's not like a ton of action to them but yep. like all the little choices you do in those games builds up and changes what's happening uh, in the yep. long yep. run.
3: Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of making choices, uh, this is probably a little little less video gamey, but more about your career because we wanted to, once again, kind of talk about the things that we don't really see about you out there. And so you mentioned a little bit about your journey starting with web design. You know, you got into being a lead, you know, designing, lead designing, project directing and all that. Was this something that, I guess, came out of opportunity or did you have any kind of approach to your career where, you know, there was rungs in the ladder that you wanted to achieve over time?
3: Um, I think at first I didn't have any, like, I was like, I, I want to design video games. Mm. Like I want to design games. I want to design video games and my first project, there were no leads. So it was just a group of peers and I was like, that's cool. But I also knew that having a strong lead would help focus everyone in a a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, we needed we needed somebody to be the lead on Icewind Dale 2, which was a real pressure cooker of a project.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, I I volunteered, if I recall correctly, or I was volunteered, but either way, I said I would do it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that I did a reasonably good job, although most of the people on that team kind of worked at their own pace, and we are all just running in the same direction, and I was kind of just trying to... At the edges like keep them going in the same like it's over there like the end is that way um but uh yeah i and then what i found is in the years after Icewind Dale 2 i really found that having the lead design having a structure where there's lead designer lead programmer lead artist maybe lead animator you know lead audio if the audio team is big enough um that group of peers on the bigger, when the projects got bigger, especially Mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of disagreement and sometimes it would be like intractable. And I knew that some projects had directors and I was like, I think we should have directors on our projects at obsidian. Mm -hmm. And initially the owners of Obsidian were like, no, no, no one man should have so much power. (laughs) And I was like, no, I think (laughs) one person should be like, it's not a power thing. It's about like, having a vision to focus everyone around. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah, and so on aliens, I was I worked on a canceled aliens game Mm -hmm. and it was really dysfunctional. And it was because the and for a lot of reasons, but the leads couldn't um like we really just couldn't agree on things. And so we were all kind of working not in opposite directions, but not in complementary directions. (laughs) And it was floundering and toward the end of development I was like, guys can you please make me the director and give me authority <laughs> to like make these decisions? And they said, all right, sure. Cause like the project was in a, a very difficult state and it didn't save it, but it did actually make a very big difference. So the difference between when I became the director, and I don't think it's by virtue of me being just that galaxy brain, but mm-hmm. having a person who's in a position to say, I know you disagree on this, but like, these are diametrically opposed things. So I have to, I have to give you a direction to go in that is a real direction and not just people doing whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And being able to do that did make a really big impact on, on the quality of the the game. It was too late. <laughs> it was canceled. <laughs> yeah. But like, mm-hmm. but that was enough for them to then on fall at new Vegas say, okay, you've convinced us directors can be effective and good. You'll be the director on fall at new Vegas. So that was the first game that we shipped that had a director. And Uh, basically there was a point in time where after years of, of directing, um, obsidian no longer really had someone in a high level creative director position. And, uh, it was not great because there was not great mentorship and stuff going on. And there wasn't high level feedback being given to the teams about design, or if it was, it was coming from people where it wasn't their discipline, Mm -hmm. um, like just the owners. Uh, and I said, Hey, I think you should make me the design director for the studio. I think it was to Fergus. And he said, or actually it's Chris Parker. And he said, I didn't think you would want to do that job. And I said, that's not what I said. I said, I think you (laughs) should make me the design director of the studio because the studio needs a design director. And frankly, I think that I'm the most qualified person to do it. Like, I don't know if this is the right, the right, maybe this is a mistake, but like, I think that I'm the right person to do it. <laughs> um, so it's been, let's see, I want to say it's been four or five years now. Um, and I still direct projects also. Yeah. Um, so I do, it, it's a little bit of a tricky balance because I do have to give feedback to all the individual teams. Cause we, we have multiple projects going on at any given time uh, and then directing my own project, which is a lot of work, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but well, in, in essence yeah. i never i never was really like oh i'm going to be the one calling the shots for design at a studio that wasn't really my plan i i do think that the idea of being a lead designer early on was appealing to me and then a director when i realized like that position is valuable and then once i was a director i'm like this is definitely what i want to be for the rest of my career like if i had to pick one to be for the rest of my career i'd rather be a game director than a design director for a studio because i yeah. i like having the vision and working with people to make that happen.
0: And something I thought was interesting too was, you know, obviously you did, uh, you know, the vocals and music for some of the, the fallout new Vegas tracks. And so I was interested to understand if there was anything else that was maybe uncharted territory for you in the industry in the process that you wanted to try out, but just haven't done yet. I mean, is there anything like that that's, uh, like voice acting, for example, I know you mentioned you haven't done any voice acting for you know for any of the games that you've worked on, but I guess is there anything kind of hiding out that you that you want to knock down next?
3: Not really. Um, <laughs> I <would think> that, <laughs> like voice acting is the thing where I don't really you know I did a, I did a lot of acting in high school and college mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. enough to you know consider it be you know eventually be my profession, but voice acting is part of that it's a separate set of skills and i don't think i would necessarily like i think i would be better at singing stuff for soundtracks than doing voice acting for games um and i'm perfect and you like we work with such great voice talent that i'm perfectly happy to let the professionals do it and even (laughs) even even with the stuff i've done like vocally you know like with the fall new vegas songs that was that was like an emergency situation where I basically had to do it because we didn't have any other options. Um, and I, tr- I tried to, I actually tried to keep all of those songs kind of in the background. Cause when I recorded them, I was like, this is pretty rushed. I yeah. don't really feel that great about the quality of them. So I said, don't, don't put them on the new Vegas radio. Yeah. And they're only in the, when you do talent pool at the top, it's like actually really hard to get them to play in game. Like you have yeah. to do a lot of work to actually get them to play. But then Bethesda, when they launched the Ultimate Edition trailer, they, which they didn't tell me they were doing this. I saw it when it came out. They made "Home on the Wastes," the song that I sang. They made that the song for the the trailer, and I was like, oh. "What the fuck?" And then a bunch of people were like, "Where's the song in the game?" And they're like, "Oh, it's at the top's talent pool." And then they're like, "This is the director singing it." Like, "Oh my god!" Um, but but that being said, like. The thing is, I have an immense amount of respect for professional musicians. Um, I went to the conservatory, I dropped out of the conservatory, I remained close friends with many of the people who were in the conservatory and I'm still friends with some of them today. They worked incredibly hard to get to the level of education and uh, skill that they have. So I'm grateful that I've been able to mess around doing some vocals, but like, I know my place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like singing a little bit here and there is fine, but like, you know, the professionals are the professionals and, and I respect their talent and expertise, so.
0: Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, we were thinking of ways that we could wrap up this conversation because obviously we we appreciate your time and we wanna make sure you get back to the ones you love, but. Yep. Um, so we, we did ask some of the fans here to ask a few questions to you because we wanted to keep things more about you, but the fans naturally wanted to keep things about some of the projects and, and specific sure. things that we, we just didn't want to uh, necessarily take too much time up with. So Chelsea's got a couple questions she's going to ask you that are uh, straight from Facebook, Twitter, and some uh, Slack channels that I subscribe to at work.
1: <laughs> and one guy who actually mailed in a letter. Wow! <laughs> One guy yes. was dedicated. He just got out a pencil paper and he just shipped this right to Chelsea. <laughs> yep.
4: I check my mail every day. So, wow. <laughs> All right. So here we go. We've got our first question. Were there tricky elements to creative freedom during the Pillars of Eternity Kickstarter? And given that this was the same time that the company's, or given the same time that the company's future was uncertain?
3: Yes, very much so. And, um, you know, I've received a fair amount of criticism, uh, for this over the years, um, pillars, at least pillars one, the setting was very safe in a lot of ways. And it was very forgotten realmsy. That was very intentional. There were a lot of things that were D and D ish. A lot of people were like, why don't you use D and D? And I'm like, well, cause we'd have to license it. And like, <laughs> that's the whole point of doing our own thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. like necessarily like, God, I hate D although a little tired of working on DD stuff, but um mm-hmm. just just I've worked on like six DD games. So <laughs> I still play DD, so it's not a hatred of D D. But um like the the fact that the company was in jeopardy and that the project was kickstarted, I felt more so than on really any other project. I felt like I had a responsibility to kind of cleave to pretty traditional stuff because that was how we pitched the game. Mm-hmm. Like you know, there are basically some people have said, why didn't you pitch something more radical? Mm-hmm. We didn't think even the pitch that we had was going to get funded. So like the idea of like, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want. It's mm-hmm. going to be crazy. <laughs> like, or something, like really esoteric. We uh, like, I just didn't think that people would want to fund that again. We didn't necessarily believe that we would hit the one point $1.1 million goal we had within 30 days. Yeah, Yeah. it was hit within 27 hours. So like, obviously we were very wrong, but our mentality (laughs) was like, we are desperate. We are asking people to do this. Let's not try to do anything. That's like really out there. You know, other people, maybe they would have done other things, but that was my, keep in mind that I had just seen 40 people get laid off at Obsidian. Mm -hmm. Like my, my Mm -hmm. project got canceled and my team, 40 people got laid off. That is I, I said it in the documentary. That was the worst day of my career. Yeah. It was like extremely, extremely shitty. And um, like I was lucky to still have a job, and I was lucky that that the company was still there. Um, so in my mind, I wasn't like I'm gonna fucking do whatever I want. I'm like I'm gonna make a Forgotten Realms game. It's gonna be really like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale, with a little bit of Planescape Torment sprinkled on the top and
1: <laughs> something so, yeah. fun
3: but safe. Yes, yes. And that was mm-hmm. really the, the direction I took it in. And obviously that had lasting ramifications because in dead fire, we tried to kind of move a little bit away from that, but there's only mm-hmm. so much you can move in a sequel before people are like, Whoa, this is way different. So yeah, there were, there were a lot of tricky elements like that where I was like, ah, I don't. Like, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable doing this knowing that people backed us in good faith that we were going to make mm-hmm. some, and there are still people that said like, you betrayed us. Like this is nothing. I do think it's crazy. when people say, this is nothing like Baldur's Gate. I'm like, well, yeah. Noth- nothing <laughs> like <laughs> Baldur's Gate. <laughs> I mean, I did make both of those games. I can say, yeah. Sure say there's, okay, I didn't work on Baldur's Gate, something. but I did work on Icewind mm-hmm. Dale. So yeah. anyway, um, yeah. Like I made the choices that I made and I feel like those, you know, if I had to do it again, I'd still probably make the same choices. So there you go. Great.
4: That's perfect. All right. Question number two. Given your thoughts on professional sports, do you think developers and crunch culture are essentially
3: the same scenario? How can we responsibly address this issue? Okay. To give a little context, someone was asking me if I watch the Tour de France because I'm very into cycling. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, no, I don't really watch any professional sports because they're so incredibly corrupt, at mm-hmm. least at the, at the very high people actually watch them internationally level, um, Mm -hmm. you know, football, everything with CTEs. Yeah. It's very, and how the players are exploited and how in their later lives, like I just, it sucks. Um, Mm -hmm. and France, um, there's a great uh, documentary called Hellentour. Um, it's translated into English as hell on hell tour or hell on wheels. And yeah. it's about the, T, the German T-Mobile team in Tour de like a Tour de France like 13 years ago or something. It's awful because if you're not one of the real elite riders in that you're making poverty money, like it, you're not being sponsored and you're destroying your body. You're absolutely destroying your body. Um, the stuff that the people on the T-Mobile team go through and they're crazy athletes. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to convey how nuts the fitness of a professional cyclist is it's unreal. Like, sorry to tangent here, but like someone was saying, I have a friend who used to work at Trek mm-hmm. and he was saying they did like some group ride with like a retired, like a long retired pro rider.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And like a lot of the young, the young bucks at Trek were like, yeah, I'm going to fucking get <laughs> <one> on. <laughs> like, like they thought they were going to beat this guy in this ride. And this dude who I, I want to say it was like maybe in his fifties or something easily, easily completely destroyed all these 25 year old guys, like mm-hmm. not even <laughs> close. like, so the thing is like the tour de France is full of people like that. And the injuries they suffer are incredible. The time they put in is incredible and they're paid virtually nothing. Um. Yeah. So, and then there's all the doping and like all yeah. like the, mm-hmm. like the fact that, and the fact that also fans don't care. Yeah. Like there are so many people I remember, whether it's like, sorry to bring this up, but like when Kobe Bryant was uh, dealing with the uh, rape mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. yeah. I was living in an area where I heard people say, I don't care if he did it. And I was yeah. like, holy fucking wow. shit, dude, yeah. like mm-hmm. what is wrong with you? It's crazy. So like you have to, or, or people who say like, I don't care if they're on a million steroids. Like, I don't care if they destroy their bodies. I don't care if they die at 40. And I'm like, what is wrong with people? So like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's very hard for me to to get into pro sports. Actually, that was Mm -hmm. not even the question, but (laughs) that was the context. (laughs) But do I think developers in crunch culture are essentially the same scenario? I don't think so. So I will say that in pro sports, like the people who train like crazy and burn their bodies up and dope and all that stuff. They're probably going to win. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. because the thing is like, what they do is like, they try to like a lot of these groups, they'll try to find the the most naturally talented who are the combination of naturally talented. And also like, will do anything to get the edge. Mm-hmm. Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and then they just go like, go, 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 go. And it works. At the, at the back end, they, the ramifications are usually very awful for their personal health and like what it does to everyone around them and everything like that. The problem with crunch is that crunch doesn't actually work. Like it's not actually comparable to like doping. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you, if you EPO dope, you're incredible. You're Superman. You're beyond the bounds of normal human beings. Um, If you crunch, you suck. Like, you do worse work. You get work done slower, and the quality goes down. Like, there's – I'm not going to say endless, but there's, like, so much evidence that says this. But people keep trying to pretend. Either a publisher puts pressure on says, work harder, and they're like, okay, well, now we're going to crunch. And they're like, yeah, keep crunching. But it doesn't actually – a little bit. Like, there are margins. Like, you can basically I, – I did a talk on this where it basically – you can crunch people for like 50 to 60 hours for like a week or two, every like couple of months or something like that a little, and it will be, and you will get efficiency. Well, you won't get efficiency gains, but you will get productivity gain, gains. Yeah. So in the fixed amount of time, you will actually get more work done. Even if efficiency goes down a little bit, if you work people longer, like more hours or for more time, then it falls off a cliff. And yeah. everyone gets insanely mm-hmm. bad. So the problem is that people keep choosing to do this, even though it doesn't work. It's really crazy. And when you hear about the games that do it, often when you hear about their development cycles, they're incredibly dysfunctional. So like, there's no way that you can argue that it helped. Like it just, it, it took a shitty situation, and just made it even worse. So like, yeah, it eventually got done. And even if it was good, it was like, yeah, we we tripped and like stepped on like 18 rakes on the way to the front the but like we got it done and they'll say see it turned out well it's like well yeah you yeah. dumped you dumped a million gallons of water in the desert and you got like corn it's like well but did you need to do that did yeah. you get that done that way it's 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 this confirmation bias that says like well it turned out well in the end and we made a lot of money and reviewed well therefore crunchiest good and it's like no 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 so that's what that's what some people think about it especially older publisher dev people but like we can responsibly address it um i don't know i mean a lot of people have talked about unionizing which is very difficult to do especially in the united states mm-hmm. um if we could i think that would address a lot of those issues yeah um i do think that a lot of smaller studios are taking it upon themselves to um have more ownership and whether it's a co-op company structure like scott benson has uh as part of uh i was gonna say glory society oh man he's gonna get mad if he hears this um but basically (laughs) it's it's a co-op there's also like a twin motion who made um twin motion made dead cells Mm -hmm. and their main branch for like 15 years was co-op uh so that sort of structure obviously gives individual employees a lot more voice in that um I think a lot of it is is getting out of the mindset and and just showing demonstrating across the industry that what we already really know across multiple industries, which is that crunch does not increase productivity in the long run, mm-hmm. and it burns people out, and uh, it's not good. So, yeah, absolutely.
4: Well, another fan states, you clear ha- clearly have a very intimate knowledge of D- D&D, but based on your live streams, your affinity and enjoyment of Fallout is just as passionate. What settings or environments do you most like telling stories within?
3: Um, you know, I uh, I think I like, it's not so much the specific type of setting, but I like working in settings that have like material underpinnings. So a lot of this comes out of my history background and being a socialist, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously like, okay, we're going to get it. Historical materialism. So being able to look at history through the lens of like, what were people like, what were people doing to try to live <laughs> <laughs> materially? Um, because that's certainly like the lens, um, Like it changes a lot of your perspectives on what was going on and why. Like, you know, when you, a lot of people talk about the Crusades as like, well, this is religiously motivated. And you're like, "Mm, is it (laughs) though? Was it? (laughs) It's like, well, that was certainly a pretext. And certainly I would believe that a lot of people involved in it devoutly believed that. But if there wasn't, were not a material concern, Mm -hmm. it just wouldn't have happened. Like, yeah. Um, a lot like a lot of the crusades that happened uh, the people that went on them, they're like, cool, I'm going to get to loot a ton of stuff. And I'm not going to, I'm going to be forgiven for all my sins while doing it. This sounds like a great deal. Um, so I like working in settings, whether they're fantasy, sci-fi, where it feels like there is material underpinning to the motives of the characters and the factions at work. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. play fall in new Vegas. It's water and yeah. power. We're in the yep. desert. Hoover Dam, Lake Mead, clean water, power. Mm -hmm. Um, People fight over it and they're trying to survive. And it makes characters, motivations, just a lot more plausible. It makes the whole world feel a lot more plausible. Deadfire is colonialist. And the the draw of the the colonial powers is that there's a resource, Adra, luminous Adra, that Mm -hmm. is extremely valuable. I mean, you know, think of gold or ivory or rubber, or you know, anything that colonial powers have gone in and said like, Ooh, goody, we're going to set up shop here mm-hmm. and it's fantasy, but um, the, the material concerns underpinning it make the factions, I think a lot more believable and plausible. And it also makes the choices you make between the factions more complicated and nuanced. And so I think that makes the role playing uh, more, I think it's best when those choices make the player kind of dig a little bit. Like it's not a snap decision. They have to go like, I don't know. like I, <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of complex things going on here. And then mm-hmm. at the highest level, it then makes them go like, ah, oh, this is kind of like this that happens in our world. <laughs> um, and so having the game choices reflect then back on like, how do I how do I think about colonialism now? How do I think about the history of colonialism and the long term effects of it and all this other stuff? So whether it's fantasy, cyberpunk, future, western, mm-hmm. modern, if we can have those material underpinnings, that's what I that's what I, I need to tell a, a good story, I think. For, yeah. From my perspective. Yes. Maybe not Absolutely. other people's Absolutely. perspective. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's always a good part of storytelling or anything really is when there's uh you know, some realism to it and yeah. you yep. can, you can grab it a lot easier. I you know like I think as uh, Jason Isaacs talks about like when he takes roles, especially for villains, like if the villains are evil for the sake of being evil, he doesn't want to do it because yeah, no one believes that. No. But it's yeah. when like, Oh, like this guy, like um, um, Malfoy in Harry Potter, it's like, yes. well, he's just an old racist. Yeah. He's a believable yeah. villain. I'll do that. Yep. So yeah, <laughs> no, you, you, you connect to it that much easier. Yep.
4: Exactly. That's exactly great well (laughs) final question here where do you see rpgs going from here we've seen that fans of isometric games are still here adapting turn-based worlds into action oriented have been successful what's the next logical step
3: um i think we're gonna see a lot more games that are especially in the smaller scale indie games Mm -hmm. that are doing stuff we haven't seen before um, you know, I mean we we kind of already know that the the whether it's bigger studios or the bigger teams at least because of the budgets involved, they're going to probably stick closely to established formulas while trying to innovate in one or two key ways without really rocking the boat. So, you know, like Mass Effect was notable because it was a third-person shooter and a space opera, which is great, but in a lot of other ways it was very traditionally RPG. Um, and also into a, an area of, you know, Star Wars-y. It's space opera, mm-hmm. so it's not weird. Mm-hmm. But, like, Disco Elysium is weird. Like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen Lisa, the RPG. Mm-mm. Lisa <laughs> no. is... A, Lisa is... So my girlfriend just played it, uh, and it's really crazy. Um, it was made by pretty much one guy. And the art style is really weird. The world is really weird. The story, everything is very strange. He did like all the music is crazy, um, and it's just it's really out there. But it's actually like really compelling and really cool. Um, and I was shocked. And then I learned he made it all in RPG Maker. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! All right. Yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy. So I think I think we're gonna see more people who are like I. I like RPGs, but I've always wanted to do one in this setting or like with this type of mechanics or whatever. So I think I think we're gonna see it come more from indie teams or small teams where uh, they're going for a niche. They wanna be niche. They want a small passionate audience that is into whatever they're crazy. Like I could see a lot of people looking at Lisa and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, I think it's actually way more alienating than something like Disco Elysium. Like it's crazy. Uh, but there's like a a very passionate core of people that love Lisa um, and obviously Disco Elysium and stuff like that. So that's what I think is going to happen. I think you're going to see people that are taking that basic concept of like, I build my character, I make my role-playing choices, and I see them reflected um, in the story, but saying like, what about in this setting or with these mechanics or with this aesthetic? Um, And again, like aesthetic doing risky things with aesthetics is also much uh, a very appealing thing if you're a small team Mm -hmm. because you want to stand out. And especially if your graphics are simple, you want to do something bold and stylistic rather than trying to go for verisimilitude that you can't possibly support. So Mm -hmm. yeah, more, more games with neat art styles, neat ways of, you know, exaggerated characters or like just, not even human characters or like, you know, just crazy stuff. I Mm -hmm. think that's what we're going to see. Well, yeah. Well, that's forward to that. Awesome.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
0: So (laughs) once again, um, it's, it's really funny how, how our paths kind of converge here. So I, once again, I really do appreciate you uh, taking the time with us. And obviously, if you're ever in Madison, you know I feel like I owe you at least some kind of alcohol. Now that you now that you've, you've been drinking for <laughs> yeah. the last you know five years, <laughs> gotta Let's, be a
3: spotted cow. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We here. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, and I
0: feel like I also owe you a shot glass because um, on one of your live streams, you were drinking tequila out of I believe uh, an old honey jar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's too so. much. That's Too much. <laughs> yeah, it
3: was like it was a little teeny honey jar like recent <laughs> shots out of that and then my girlfriend has teeny sake glasses but they're not neither of them are really like shot glasses so it's kind of <laughs> like yeah I, I may need to get a shot glass one of these days. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wasn't a factor. I feel like we'd probably still be talking to Josh right uh, about now. Uh, I could seriously talk about really anything. Um, you know, I wonder if he's ever like thought about doing audiobooks, even like a one nine hundred work sort of thing. Um, yeah, I really think he's got a career far beyond gaming.
0: <laughs> well, I absolutely agree with that, and we want to say a big thank you to Josh Sawyer as we officially close this chapter on our RPG coverage. We want to also wish obsidian entertainment and their crew the best of luck as they enter their next projects as they continue to captivate us with their storytelling and unique player experiences but next week we're going to look inward and not just because we desperately need some group therapy we're going to analyze our own nerdiness and welcome some friends to the podcast for some topics that are a bit closer to the chest
1: doug Everly, who you might remember from earlier this season will be returning to talk about The Games That Made Us, an ongoing series that will break down some of our favorite titles that had a major impact on our gaming journeys, including a few of his own. We'll also be joined by Jeff and Corey of the Switch the Envelope podcast. We'll be looking at the emergence of nerd culture and how it would go from esoteric to mainstream phenomena. We hope you're ready for a fun week with two full episodes.
0: And until next time keep on dissecting.